So I, I taught a short weekend retreat over the weekend for yogis who were deaf and hard of hearing. It was interesting, and I don't know sign language, so we had interpreters there um, in order to make my teachings accessible and so I could understand them. And I found it quite fascinating, actually, to have contact with this very different world. I don't live in that world. And I had to learn about it and uh, learn what was appropriate. And I made a couple mistakes, like moving into the visual field of... um, between two people, which is not polite, and you know, they need that space to be able to talk. Um, so I became very aware of my position, for example. And it got me thinking about the way that we construct our various worlds. You know, we have our particular way of perceiving, and that influences how we and decide that the universe is, <laughs> and therefore the story that we live in and that we continue to recreate and that the options we think we have. I was very impressed, actually, with the sincerity of the yogis, um, their sharpness about seeing their own experience and understanding it in terms of the Dharma, even though some of them were fairly new Dharma students and others were more experienced. Uh, there was one fellow in particular who had uh, just gotten a new set of uh, cochlear implants. So if you have just you know a small amount of hearing, you can improve it slightly with these cochlear implants. And he had gotten a new set that was more advanced technologically. And so he had noticed, so suddenly his world was completely different because he could uh, perceive differently than he could before. And he noticed that it changed the way he thought. And, um, like, for example, he became aware, once he got these new ones, he's also in a wheelchair, and he became aware that his wheelchair makes noise, uh, which he hadn't really been aware of before. And so then he had all these thoughts about, oh, no, I might be disturbing people with this sound, or maybe I'm, you know, in some way, yeah, getting in the way somehow. Um, And he had never had thoughts like that before. So he could see the sequence of causality, you know, that by being, by having a different kind of awareness, then he, that conditioned to have different thoughts and to see the world in a different way and to behave in a different way. And this is exactly the uh, process of the Eightfold Path. And this is a sort of a mundane example, not necessarily leading toward awakening, but it's the same process, is that by what we take in, um, our view, how we're able to see things, then we change our behavior in certain ways, and that changes uh, what we, what insights we can have about the mind, and that changes our view. It's kind of the same process. It's that we're redoing a system that's already in place. You're not a blank slate. <laughs> and so you have to figure out how to get from here to somewhere else. And these practices are designed to, uh, to do that for us. But overall, I was... Um, I was really, I think, put more into my own experience of the fact that I can hear. So I live in a totally different world. 
And then that uh, conditions different things about what I think is possible. I was then reminded of something that happened to me uh, a few years ago that's very much related to perception also. Is that I, when I used to live at the Insight Retreat Center, one day I went down into the basement and I opened one of the closet doors and there was a scorpion on the floor <coughs> in the closet. And, you know, I, I looked at it and my mind immediately delivered the word scorpion. I knew what it was, even though I hadn't exactly seen one that close in the wild, so to speak. But, you know, my mind instantly knew what it was, but at the same time it conditioned this feeling of confusion. You know, it's like, what is that? I didn't think that there would be a scorpion there. I thought they were, I actually thought they were desert creatures, but I now know they can live in a lot of different climates, including this one. And so I had this, um, and so I would look again, and again my mind would say, scorpion, <laughs> and then there'd be this story of, a, well, how is that possible? What is that? What do I do about it? And so I, I got to see very clearly the way the mind uh, has a visual input, creates an understanding of what's happening, and then creates a story around that. It creates a whole world of, okay, what is this? What do I need to do to respond? So I decided that what I would do is I would go and you know, I would take it outside, like you take a spider outside or something. And so, um, But I didn't exactly know how to catch a scorpion, so l- luckily I... I went to the internet and I looked up how you catch a scorpion. Pretty fairly quickly, I learned that you can catch it just like a spider in sort of a jar, sort of thing, and get it in there and then take it outside. But I was afraid of the scorpion, right? So fear was conditioning how I was doing this. I mean, they're really designed to look menacing. Um, they have this big thing hooked up over their head that you know has a poison stinger on it, and they stand kind of bent forward, so it looks kind of aggressive. And so I thought, boy, how am I going to get this thing, even though it's, you know, three inches long? Um, so I put on boots, and, <laughs> and I, I went and I got, you know, sort of a wide mouth Tupperware container from the kitchen and, and a, a nice rubber spatula in case I needed to kind of help it along, because I don't think they really crawl up the sides the way spiders will crawl up the side of a jar, and they don't really do that. But anyway, the, the whole thing was quite elaborate in my mind, I created a whole universe around, you know, this situation. It wasn't really dramatic, but I, I watched my mind doing this. I, I felt fairly calm through the whole thing. So I went and, you know, I put the Tupperware over it, you know, trying to get it to go in so I can put the lid on. The poor thing was terrified, <laughs> you know. It's like, in its world, a huge giant had come and was doing some horrible thing to it. And you know, I, I had imagined it as this very, because to my visual impression, it was this aggressive-looking thing. And the poor thing was just terrified. It was actually very peaceful. It had no intention, as far as I could tell, of stinging me. So it was all fine. I got it in the jar, and I took it outside and all that. But I just reflected on, you know, wow, this whole, all started by opening the door and seeing. It was a visual impression that started the whole thing. And so... I encourage you to look at the um, the ways in which your world is constructed by the very simple things that you encounter, and you know it's it's one thing to have one sensory input and then a feeling tone about it and a perception of what it is and then create a story. We can see that fairly easily, but it goes beyond that to we carry in our mind what could be called a model of the universe, of, you know, how this world works and my place in it. 
And that is usually subconscious. That's not something that we see very clearly until it gets disrupted, which it will eventually by, you know, something like aging, illness, or death, or some other thing. Um, And then we see that our world is different than we thought it was. And before that, though, meditation, the process of meditation is designed to help us see those things so that it's not such a surprise if and when they change, when they change. So I wanted to share this poem by Norman Fisher called A Model of the Universe. Some you'll probably resonate with, and some you'll say, no, I'm not that stupid, I don't have that model of the universe. But the ones that you do, (laughs) he gives several options for us. So it's called A Model of the Universe. What we want is a model of the universe that includes everything, leaving nothing out, yet is completely different, fresh, unique, holding nothing in common with any of its constituent elements, yet is not strange, exotic, and does not make us feel uncomfortable. What we want is a model of the universe we can read about in a magazine article with pictures, yet it can't be just another magazine article, and it can't be in a regular magazine. This magazine will glow as it shimmers before our eyes. What we want is a model of the universe that will answer all our questions, to which we can refer for all sorts of advice, to foretell the future, cure bursitis, get rich, quick, aphrodisiac, etc. And it will be absolutely foolproof 100% of the time. What we want is a model of the universe that we can talk to coyly, we can droop our eyelids at, plump our lower lips, begin the sniffle, and it will pat our shoulders and say, there, there, dear, grow sad and droopy itself, but without ever really losing its composure or assurance. What we want is a model of the universe so complex we can never understand it, so simple we can grasp it in a glance and explain it to our friends via a few simple sentences. What we want is a model of the universe which, once in our possession, becomes identified so strikingly with us that we become internationally famous, our names, household words, the meaning of our doing and saying, an eternally living legacy around which all subsequent culture is organized. What we want is a model of the universe we can count on time after time, yet is never tiring, never predictable, eternally new. What we want is a model of the universe that is better than someone else's model of the universe, that makes their model of the universe look really pale by comparison, although only we realize this, we and our intimate friends. But our model of the universe is also better than the model of the universe of even our intimate friends, although the factor of the matter is that no one but us really possesses a model of the universe. It is our own little secret. However, we write poems about it that strike others as infinitely suggestive and profound. But since this makes us feel lonely, we want a model of the universe that everyone understands. We want a model of the universe that explains everything, yet doesn't take the mystery out of anything. In fact, adds mystery even to the simplest of our daily actions. A model of the universe that keeps us fit and eating delicate and healthy foods a model of the universe in which we appear never overweight nor old, yet we don't want to actually appear in this model of the universe. We want to be beyond it, holding it in our hand, 
looking at it from a distance, yet we don't want to feel alienated from it either. We want love. We want a model of the universe in which we can always stay home, yet be able to travel whenever we want to remote places where all foreign languages are actually English, (laughs) though they never lose their ethnic charm. What we want is a model of the universe contiguous with the total shape of time so that neither begins nor ends is neither something nor nothing. What we want is a model of the universe in which this poem, therefore, never ends and in which it never began. So, please enjoy your model of the universe. (laughs) Are there any comments or questions? I had a very difficult morning. Um, I came in here very upset, emotionally upset. It's been quite a while since I felt that emotionally upset. And so I was alternately feeling emotionally upset and then looking at it and realizing that it's my story. Yeah, it's my story, but it's really what I'm feeling. And so it was good. There was good material there for a sit. So I spent the first half of the sit working on that, seeing into it, connecting some things together in my mind. And then I shifted back, tried to stay with my breath. And that was moderately successful and moderately not. And by the end of the sit, I opened my eyes and I could see what I felt and I saw was the flimsiness of the story that I'd come in with. Mm. And I looked around and I saw and I went through my mind, my goodness, I know people in this room are carrying much more difficult stories, having much more challenges in my life, in their lives. And I just feel completely different now. Um, it's it's been a very fruitful hour, and I so much appreciate this place and you and all of the rest of you to create the support for that kind of work. But it makes a huge difference in the world. I don't have to carry that story back into where it came from and have it ripple out to the people around me. It's just an example of how this practice is so precious. Thank you. It really is. And I think everyone has a, probably a similar story at some level. And, and I love being reminded, can never be reminded too much of how valuable this work is in reducing suffering, not just here, but everywhere that it would touch otherwise. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And so, Kim, you mentioned the uh, Eightfold Path. I noticed that, yeah, which is the factors of enlightenment. Um, They're included in there, yeah. Yeah, well, I think the, the idea there is that that's the path to the end of suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, yeah, it's four noble truths, right? But what's not in there is the meta practice, the loving kindness, the compassion. I'm not sure that I could get to an enlightened state without 
the metapractice and the compassion. I, I don't think I could do that. I'm just wondering why that's not in Eightfold Path. Well, my understanding is that um, the three wise intentions, which are renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion, or technically they're non-harming and non-cruelty, but they're usually interpreted as loving kindness and compassion. So they're included um, as part of wise intention, oh, as the okay. intentions that will support us being able to walk the path. Um, and I also feel that the ethical steps of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood are very much grounded in a sense of connection with others and wanting to create harmonious relationships. Okay, good. So they are. So they're included okay, uh, in that sense. And yeah. Yeah, just because, I mean, when I look at my stories, and then my, I realize my stories are constructed on ignorance and delusion, you know, that's actually, that's, for me, that's very upsetting. You know, to see that so clearly. Mm. And then, so it's necessary for me to practice compassion and loving kindness to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is very helpful. That's one of the ways that the those practices support our path, is that they uh, encourage us to keep going, essentially, and to make sure that we're... Um, and the thing about the path is it's possible, until we're free, right, we have the potential to create suffering, and so it's possible to walk the path in a way that brings suffering, although that that would be not quite walking the path. But we, you know, we're sort of prone to that until we get to the end. So these practices, I think, act as kind of like bumpers on the side to help bring us back toward walking it in a way that doesn't cause additional suffering. It's just about letting go. Thank you for that reminder, because we all need that. Yeah. I, I love what you were saying because I have been I've been realizing that I have this model of the world, particularly in relation to politics, and that I grew up in the fifties, and you know everything was mom and apple pie, and, and everything should be good, you know. And now I think the thing that's really upsetting me and maybe other people is. All this stuff is in your face that's not nice, you know, it's not good. And um, I really don't, it, it, you know, it's like I know that suffering exists in the world, but I really want to push it away, you know, I really don't want to see it mm. and I don't want to accept it. And I, it, because it rattles my model of the world, you know. And I want to keep my nice little model of the world that felt safe there, you know. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why we constructed it that way, because we have a natural desire toward wanting to be safe, wanting to be in a situation that feels comfortable to us. That's actually very normal. Um, the Buddha's pointing us toward a more radical kind of safety and peace. Yeah, yeah I have to say one other thing about this weekend is... Um, it was the first time in many months that I've been at a Dharma teaching where for multiple days we didn't use the phrase, in these times, mm -hmm. talk about that. It was not so relevant. They were just so grateful to have access mm -hmm. to 
something that they don't get access to very often. It was all about, teach me the practice, teach me what's going to help my mind be free and peaceful. All right, take care.